Hey, Baltimore, this is Mike uh, filling in for Megan, who wishes she could be here to talk with uh, Dr. John Krakauer, who is, among other things, the John C. Malone Professor of Neurology and Neuroscience at the JHU Brain, Learning, Animation, and Movement Lab. Uh, that's just one of many credentials. How do you, how do you like to be known? Um, that's fine. Yeah, I'm a professor of neurology and neuroscience uh, at Johns Hopkins. That's fine. How does one become a professor of neurology and neuroscience? Well, I mean, there are two different disciplines. Neurology is a clinical discipline. Neuro neuroscience is a scientific discipline. So you really need to do two parallel training tracks. One is medical and one is scientific. So you have to be a big nerd, actually. <laughs> and well, and then you, you're uh, a big nerd with a specialty. So uh, you're, I know you're, you're, you're studying stroke and, and the, the, the biomechanics around the neurology uh, with brain, brain issues, brain damage specifically. How would you explain it? Right. So my scientific interest is movement. I'm interested in um, how the brain controls movement. I'm interested in how we get better with practice. We don't really know why we get better with practice and what skill actually is. Um, so that's my scientific interest. And then the clinical application of that interest is how do you make people move again after they've had brain injury? And so does a lot of that work involve rerouting neural pathways, trying to get the brain to, to work differently? Yes. I mean, you know, there are lots of these buzzwords, rerouting, reorganization, plasticity, rewiring. Um, but yes, we believe that the brain has some capacity to repair itself and that training experiences uh, and other kinds of intervention can help augment that repair process. So yes, and rerouting is one way to think about it. You know, alternative parts of the brain having access to your muscles. So what, what's a typical week for you? How, how much are you in a lab? Are you supervising a team of people? How much are you seeing patients? What's that like? Yeah, so I would say I'm predominantly in the lab, uh, maybe 90, 10, 85, 15. It, it, it turns out that with this week, I'm running the uh, brain repair unit, the stroke unit up at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, but mainly um, the lab, which is called BLAM, the Brain Learning Animation and Movement Lab, uh, which has postdocs, graduate students, research assistants, um, and other faculty all working together on either pure movement-based science or stroke recovery. And you've done, uh, you've got uh, bachelor's and master's degrees from Cambridge. Uh, you, I gather, were at Hopkins for your internship, but uh, then went back to went to Columbia. Uh, yes, uh, I always wanted to. When I left Europe, I wanted to uh, live in New York City. Um, so I went there uh, for medical school, and then I was on faculty at Columbia until six years ago when I moved to Baltimore. Um, I did one year as an intern at Johns Hopkins, uh, and obviously I felt the tug of Baltimore many years later. Oh, that's you know we do like to hear that. So we, we always <laughs> ask people about their Baltimore story. You know, I, living around the world, I'm sure you travel quite a bit, uh, and then moving here from New York City, there's. There's always, I think, this uh, chip on our shoulder that Baltimore isn't New York, but very few cities can be. How, how do you compare the two, or what is it about Baltimore? That's no, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I've lived in Lisbon, London, and New York City, so I've lived in you know, fairly major metropolises, and uh, moving to Baltimore um, was a lot easier. I mean, I think I was in Manhattan for so long that I was ready to have a change, um, and I do think Baltimore triggers loyalty earlier than many other cities. I I think it's got a special background. Um, it has a special makeup. I think it's slightly the bad boy, ugly duckling of the Amtrak corridor. Um, and I also feel like any given person 
can make a bigger difference. Uh, but I, I genuinely love Baltimore. Um, and I'm a ardent defender when people do make those cliched remarks about it. Um, but I mean it sincerely. I, uh, I don't miss New York. I mean, I miss my friends and I miss certain cultural things, but I'm happy in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been in a couple of East Coast cities that have been uh, kind of insecure about themselves, but they're fiercely proud. You know, they're the first to beat the, beat up on themselves, but when an outsider does it, they circle the wagons and, and come to the defense. Well, of I mean, jobs. if you're going to be critical, I think you actually have to know something. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people will just say things about Baltimore sometimes when they haven't even visited. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think one should be very tolerant of that. There's actually data through the convention center and, and visit Baltimore that shows just that, that people who uh, come here who only knew it through, you know, the wire, through uh, news media or word of mouth, uh, that well, they experience a very different city that they expect. And so the city is uh, much more uh, dynamic and engaging and um, then they become uh, and I th- And I think it's a little deeper than that. I mean, I don't want to get too political, but I... I actually think that sometimes when people make comments about Baltimore, it's sort of thinly veiled prejudice sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that it's its diversity, that it's its engine and its magic and its potential. And so even when people made comments about, you know, the demonstrations a few mm-hmm. years ago and when Prince came, you know, I was there at the Prince concert and I was interviewed by The Guardian and I was there with the whole crowd. And, you know, I, I think there was a lot to celebrate about those demonstrations, actually, you know, and the solidarity behind Freddie Gray and Prince coming. And so sometimes people make negative comments about Baltimore about precisely the things that one should be extremely proud of, right? And uh, so I love this city and I like the fact that it has activists and I'm happy that it... Um, stood up for somebody who was hurt. So I'm proud. Cities are leading, I think, whether it's social justice issues or whether it's uh, creative problem solvings about sort of larger infrastructure municipal issues. I, you see cities and, and states like California kind of leading the way. What role do you think an institution like Hopkins plays or, or, or the people who, outside of the institution, who, who go to work and study at Hopkins every day but you know, live their lives in the city? Do, do you see a similar engagement around issues in Baltimore from your I, peers? I, I think that there's increasing awareness both at the medical school and at the university university campus uh, for increasing engagement with Baltimore. I think I know from, you know, President Daniels uh, on down and Dean Rothman that there is a commitment to the city and a belief that we are in the city. It's not like we could be anywhere and it just so happens we're in Baltimore. It matters. The specificity of being in Baltimore matters. And I think increasingly there is a desire to bridge the divide and, and mix it up. I mean, certainly in my work, um, we've been involved with other Baltimore institutions, including MICA, uh, the Baltimore Aquarium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can only move forward more. I mean, working with, um, I don't know if you um, know Ultranate, you know, mm-hmm. the DJ, but, yep. you know, she and I have been trying to work towards a project bringing together Hopkins and the city. Um, so I, I'm uh, personally, I want to do even more of it. And I think the Medical school and the university also want to have an increasing role in the health and happiness of the city. Baltimore has a very dynamic life sciences uh, tradition here, at least in the last couple of decades. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? About that you know, from coming from the outside, what what the reputation for Baltimore institutions are, and that includes Hopkins and the UM Biotechnology Institute and the University of Maryland Biopark and uh, so many other individual labs and, and research facilities. Well, I mean, I think. You know, 
One, there's Hopkins University of Maryland, the National Institute of Aging, um, and NIDA are here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one hour away from the NIH mm-hmm. uh, on the Amtrak corridor. Uh, so it's an incredible place for both um, tech and for life science um, and academia in general. So I think a lot of people realize that. I think, you know, we almost got Google Cable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, I think people realize that it's extremely well situated for science and technology. Um, And maybe after 2008, and hopefully there'll be no other crash, I think this place is um, just going to rise and rise and rise. What are your uh, what are your favorite things to do in Baltimore when you're not uh, you know wheeling and dealing at the labs <laughs> or with Ultranate and <laughs> Well, I I I I loved uh you know going to Deep Sugar um and I'm sad that that's closed mm-hmm. although it's going to be born again like the phoenix from the ashes I'm sure knowing both Ultra and Lisa. Um I you know I I have to admit I my life has been a little bit circumscribed between the gym and the the hospital and home. But I do like um, going out and trying out new restaurants here in Baltimore. I love going to the Charles. Um, I play a lot of squash. Uh, and I'm beginning to get more involved with other neighborhoods in Baltimore. But I don't know it as well as I should, given the fact that I've been here over five years. What, what are some of your favorite go-tos? To, or if you want to show the city off to somebody, where do you go? Oh, well, I mean, I think we definitely show off the waterfront. I mean, so I love where we live. We're just one block away from the water. So I think just walking along that waterfront all the way from Fells to Canton is, mm-hmm. is lovely. Um, I think Mount Vernon is very, very attractive. Um, restaurants, well, have a few favorites. Uh, John Waters' favorite, uh, Peter's down in Fells Point. I like to go there. Um, I like the whole neighborhood around Micah Station North. Mm-hmm. Um, I like what's happening there. I love Red Emma's. That's one of my favorite places. Um, and, but yeah, I suppose that's it. I'm not, I'm beginning to try and find out more about the music here. Um, Creative Alliance, mm-hmm. I think, is wonderful. Um, but I'm not super knowledgeable yet. That's okay. I'm still, I mean, we're all still learning, and the city's changing quite a lot. Um, are there, this is going to sound really trite, so shoot me down if this is just a pop question. But do, do you see, what, what, could you compare sort of what happens in the brain with the, the sort of dynamic processes of neighborhoods and, and sort of urban organizations? Is there is there a thought there, or am I just reaching for it? Not at all. In fact, you're entirely correct. Um, it, it turns out that um, the brain is considered uh, a dynamic, complex system. Uh, where it has properties that are the sum of its interacting parts. Um, And my brother, actually, is the uh, president of the Santa Fe Institute, which is the place where the study of complex adaptive systems really started. Um, And they talk all the time about the similarities between, for example, an ant colony, traffic, the brain, Mm -hmm. a city, and that these are made up of um, nodes which are linked in complex networks, and that there are mathematical properties of these complex systems that are common from the brain to an ant colony to a city. And in fact, the former president of the um, Santa Fe Institute uh, modeled cities and could basically tell you, uh, given a certain population, what the properties of a city would be, how many you know, homes it would have, and how long the subway would be, and what the 
electrical system underneath it would be like. In other words, it's uh, very much a, a, a proper way of thinking to compare a city to a nervous system. All right. Well, that's, uh, I guess, one, one for me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I am fascinated by the sort of working in X. I mean, I've, I, you, you often hear about, for example, the study of traffic as a wave dynamics, you know, that it all comes back to the, the same basic properties, the sort of building blocks of science, math, physics. Well, that there's structure that, that emerges from smaller interacting parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think what's nice about cities in the brain is they're made, in, made up of living organisms, a little different from talking about the weather, for example, which is mm-hmm. also a complex system. So absolutely, there are shared principles across all these complex interactive systems. So is that that complexity of those systems and the interactions, why you were reluctant to use a word like, you know, rewiring or, you know, when, when, when talking about a, a brain that's healing or recovering from something like that? I, I just think that in science, in other words, I, I, I think there's a tendency to attach to buzzwords that are a way of transmitting complex ideas to the general public. Um, and I think there is a way to be clear but to not overly simplify mm-hmm. or not have words that sound like knowledge, sound like they're conveying more than they do. And so I'm always very wary of nodding and and saying yes about words that convey less than it seems that they're conveying. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's just a, a caution. And I, and I actually think the general public would rather hear the arguments, the uncertainties, the difficulties, the contradictions, the subtleties, than say, just give us the elevator pitch. Just tell us. I, I don't think that works for complex ideas. What do you think the state of uh, science education in the country is right now? And, and, and not just the U.S., I mean globally. It, are, are we, it seems like for every major generational set of advances we make, there is on some other level a, um, a sociological uh, retrenchment, uh, you know, it's, it's this civic idea that maybe things are getting out of ahead of us, things are changing too quickly, and whether you know, we we there's a fit where I think culture stops to take stock and, and right. So, in other words, I know what you're getting at, and I I do think that there's this sense of hurtling headlong with change happening so fast that one is always behind the eight ball, one can't keep up. With mm-hmm. the changes, you know, there's a, uh, a European sociologist who calls it sort of liquid modernity, mm-hmm. uh, where, for example, you know, in early modern Europe through to perhaps the 19th century, the toys that you played with, you know, were the same toys that your parents played with, which are the same toys that your grandparents played with. Now, essentially, in the space of a single generation, which is usually thought of as 30 years the objects, the things, the vocabulary, the experiences are unrecognizable. Um, so I think that's kind of speeding up of change um, is definitely there. Um, I also think that science is sometimes conflated with engineering and technology and data um, and computers. And technology and science are not synonyms. How so, would you explain the difference? Well, for example, you know, if Charles Darwin were to come back today and were to try and get an interview at a major science institute and said what he wanted to do was to go on a travels for a couple of years, taking long walks through forests with a notebook, observing and thinking and ultimately writing a book, they would say, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. Now it's what techniques do you have? You know, what kind of big data analysis can you do? 
what's your technology? Mm-hmm. So there's always been a tendency in the U.S. to believe that technology is going to solve everything for us. And look, if, if, if a computer can play chess or Go, maybe a computer can solve scientific problems and maybe a computer can do surgery as a robot and maybe one day we'll have technology that will get us out of trouble when it comes to global warming. So we don't really need to worry about it now because some kind of technological breakthrough will save us. So this kind of solutionism where technology is just around the corner to rescue us, I think is bad and it detracts from slow, deliberative, critical thinking, which is what science and any academic subject in the humanities needs as well. Um, So that's my concern, is it's a kind of fast shallowness rather than slow depth. Well, uh, so technology is a tool and science is more of a process? Yes, I I think that's, yes. I mean, I think science is a way of thinking. It's a way of formulating questions. It's a way of channeling curiosity. Um, I don't think that's the same as um, coming up with solutions using technology. There's overlap in the thought processes, but I don't think it's helpful to consider them synonyms. This is unrelated to your work, but it, in some ways might sim- it might be very similar, and I would expect you've got some thoughts on it. But <clears throat> something as complicated as driverless cars, something yes. where they're trying to basically make an electronic system uh, emulate the, the complex processes that happen in, in, a, in a human brain and in, in human functionality. Is, is, that, is that possible? Is it realistic, given all the variables? that? Well, right. I mean, as you know, I mean, it's the huge interest right now. And there are, just like Asimov had his robotic laws, there are now levels of autonomy for a driverless car from levels one to five. Um, I think one has to decide whether driving a car is sufficiently constrained as a problem that you can see it like playing chess or go, or whether it's sufficiently open-ended that it's going to really require us understanding more about cognition um, to solve it. I mean, I think the big issue is with deep learning and deep networks, people are beginning to wonder whether we need to understand the human brain or humans in order to have decision-making, intelligent, alternative forms. You know, neuroscience was very much predicated on the idea that if we understood human intelligence, then we could apply it maybe to robots and technology. But now, increasingly, we may actually be able to make um, discoveries with regards to decisions and computers and artificial intelligence that don't require the study of the human brain, Mm -hmm. that they will be different to us, but solve the problems in another way. Um, And I think driverless cars are being thought of as the first test of really useful decision-making being made by a machine without, in fact, having to make it be like a human. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, what that leads to is what happens if there's an accident? You know, who's to blame? Who goes to court? Uh, that whole ethical apparatus um, has to be constructed for non-human autonomous machines. But right now, I think we're overblowing it because you could actually say that about a seeing-eye dog, right? If, you are, if you're blind and you have a seeing-eye dog and it leads you into the street and you get run over, do you take the dog to court? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it's as different as we think it is just because it's made out of metal and silicon. It does bring a, a more literal 
meaning to the uh, the term computer crash, though. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's get back to your work, Doctor. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of your research? And you've got a couple different areas of, of interest, particularly with regard to a, a brain that's responding to uh, a trauma of some kind. Right. So my clinical work is in stroke, um, which is the leading cause of uh, neurological disability in adults in the U.S. Um, and as a clinical neurologist, uh, that's the area that I specialize in. Um, but I've just written a book, actually, that we just submitted it, called Broken Movement. And uh, essentially, the idea is that what stroke does is it breaks your movements. And I hope that the word break suggests that you might be able to fix it. And we're interested in finding ways to help people recover after their uh, stroke. Um, it turns out that the brain has a capacity to mend itself in a very short period of time after the stroke. Um, it's not a long window of opportunity, but it's there. And our main ambition is to understand the mechanisms behind this self-repair process that the brain undergoes early after stroke and also find ways to exploit it with gaming and robotics and other experiences um, that essentially promote childlike exploration in this unique window of plasticity that exists after stroke. So that's our mm -hmm. main idea is how do we create scientifically informed experiences that increase your chances of recovering after brain injury. How do you take something as complicated as that? And obviously you just gave me the, uh, the shortened version. How do you take that to the, your talk at the, uh, the health labs at Light City? Well, I think there are, there are two talks I think I'm giving there. I think that the – I think first of all you introduce the problem. I think people are not that aware of what stroke does. Um, then you begin to explain the logic of how you found a solution. So you talk about plasticity. You talk about repair. You talk about the animal models that have been used to investigate these mechanisms. You then talk about – Enrichment, In other words, rats after stroke do much better if they're in a cage full of toys with their friends. So then that gets you thinking, well, instead of being alone in your hospital room, what would the human equivalent of being in an enriched environment playing with your friends and with toys be for a patient? I mean, one of the points I always make is that being a patient is such a sad, lonely business. Um, we don't make huge efforts to make being sick enjoyable. It almost sounds wrong to enjoy your illness, um, but that's what I think we need to do. And then that insight, I think, leads to the thinking about games, mm -hmm. because games are fun. And from there, one gets to what kind of game, and that's why we started working with the Baltimore Aquarium and simulating dolphins, because people love dolphins, because they move intelligently and beautifully. And it snowballs, right? You have a variety of observations, and then you try and bring them all together in a final experience. Is it similar to uh, what happens with a child when they are, as they're playing and experiencing the world? Yes. I mean, we, we absolutely, I mean, I think Picasso had the line that every um, artist is an adult who wants to be a child again. And I think we absolutely would like to exploit that childish delight in movement and exploration as a way to get people to try and uh, reorganize their brain. Um, that's absolutely, we talk about that all the time. We actually use a term called motor babbling, where, you know, if you have your little, little babies are just swinging their arms out in front of them, just, ooh, if I send that command, my arm goes over there. And then if I do that, my arm goes over there. It's not even really based on any given task. It's just the delight of moving. And I think that childlike exploratory delight in moving is very much what we're trying to recreate in patients after stroke, adult patients.
So uh, when does your book come out? My book, I, I, <laughs> my lab would laugh because it's basically taken over my life the last year or so and I just submitted it. So I'm hoping that the book, the um, MIT Press are publishing it and they are hoping to have it available at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington in November so I can sit at a desk and sign it. Because, of course, you can imagine a book on stroke and brain plasticity is going to be an absolute runaway bestseller. <laughs> I, you know, I actually, <laughs> just speaking for my own circle of friends, I, I, uh, I know a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who have certainly experienced this through a relative or a family member. I, uh, I think it's, um, it's something with which a lot of people have um, an emotional connection, if not a, a, you know, a deeper intellectual understanding about the processes involved in recovery. Absolutely. I mean, I, I get emails every week from people who have read about what we're doing. You know, there was a profile in The New Yorker last year, and um, I think it touches a large number of people. And uh, not enough money goes into stroke research, especially not recovery. Um, that's a plug. Um, but I, So I think that um, people see beautiful new hospitals and think that when they go in after their brain injury, they're going to get some incredible new treatment. And the fact of the matter is that rehabilitation has not really advanced that much in the last 50 years, uh, and we need a revolution. That was Dr. John Krakauer, who is going to be speaking at the Health Lab at Light City, which is presented by Kaiser Permanente. Uh, that's one of six innovation conferences that are going to be taking place uh, during Baltimore's second annual Light City Festival. If you're interested in attending the labs and learning more about Dr. Krakauer or, or seeing him and asking him questions in person, uh, you can sign up for the lab uh, at lightcity.org. Uh, you can also check back to our podcast, and uh, we'll link to the New Yorker article that he mentioned. And uh, we hope to talk more uh, in the future because your, your interests go so so much more beyond just uh, your, your day job and uh, especially if, uh, the, the project with Ultranete we always love to uh, combine science and, and, and art yeah absolutely I'd love to come back well doctor thank you so much for being here my pleasure uh, this is Mike Evitz for Megan Eisenach at Hey Baltimore <laughs>